Welcome to the Money School Podcast for January 15th, 2021. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Happy Friday. I hope you had a great week. Sorry for the delay getting this out. I wanted to have it out earlier this week, but um, you know how that goes. Work's been crazy. It took me a little longer to put the finishing touches on it. Um, Then I wanted to re-record some of it. So um, like I said, hope you're having a great week. Hope you have a good weekend. Part three will drop on Sunday. Here we go. Part two of getting started is going to be about interest rates, the dollar, the budget, and just a brief overview on how those things work together. They can be really boring. I don't want to go super into the technical details or anything, but I want to do a broad overview because it is really important and it's critical in terms of you know, reading those tea leaves to make informed decisions with your investments and you know, all of the decisions that you're making in terms of how you value certain growth and if there are red flags that you know, might save you money at some point in the future. So I wanted to go over everything you know, and explain things in a manner that you know, if you want really technical, there's honestly, there's great YouTube videos. Uh, Ray Dalio has put out some great content about how the Federal Reserve and the Treasury work. I definitely think that that's worthwhile. It's, I think, 22 minutes long, but awesome. There's some good technical videos that you can watch if you're interested in that, but that's not what this is going to be. I just want to give, you know, kind of a layman's outline of how they work together and philosophically what's happening between all of the relationships of interest rates, the dollar, gold, the stock market, and then global economies around the world. When you're listening to news or reading about this stuff, one thing that you're going to hear a lot is monetary policy and fiscal policy. And just to be clear on what the difference is between those two, the monetary policy is what happens from the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is just a bunch of bankers uh, on boards of governors that vote on essentially the wholesale rate um, interest rate between banks to lend money to each other and they're led by the chairman of the Federal Reserve, which is Jerome Powell, and then separately over in the Treasury, which is run by the Secretary of Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, that's a cabinet position appointed by the president. They do all the the spending and the legislation in terms of the money. So fiscal policy is what the government does with the money, and the central bank, what they do, their policies in terms of their mandate of maximum employment and keeping the currency stable, that's monetary policy. They're dealing with the money. And then on the fiscal side, the treasury is dealing with the budget stuff and the balancing of revenue in terms of taxes and spending. And that's why Mnuchin was really important with the CARES Act and all of that. And the incoming change is the previous chairman of the Federal Reserve or chairwoman of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, she's coming back, but she's not coming back for her old job. She's coming back to run treasury. So fiscal policy will be dictated by Janet Yellen and monetary policy is going to be dictated by Jerome Powell. The Federal Reserve is supposed to be an apolitical position and the, it's supposed to be independent of the president. And one thing that a lot of purists were upset with was Trump's interference with Jerome Powell. And if rates wanted to, if rates were supposed to go up, 
then he would have the data should have shown that and he should have made those decisions. The issue was is he was pressured into raising rates before the market was really ready for a lot of it. And the combination of that with the fiscal policy of tax cuts and tariffs and budget, that is what led to the spike of rates that the market didn't like and then the impending reversal of the dollar. And there was rumors that Biden would potentially um, look to replace Jerome Powell, but I don't think that's what's going to happen at all. Um, traditionally, that we're, we're going to, he's going to try to contrast himself against Donald Trump at every turn that he can. And one of them is going to return the independence to the Fed and then let Janet Yellen make data driven decisions based of, on the policy. So I really do think that there's a, a better chance that we run smaller deficits than people think. And yesterday, or you know, the last couple of days, the Fed has really spoken. Uh, Jay Powell came out yesterday and was talking uh, that their inflation target is for 2% for at least a full year before they raise any of the Fed funds rate. So their goal, tip, their target inflation is 2%. So the Fed wants 2% inflation and the the United States government wants 2 3 4% GDP. If we have GDP below 2%, then it becomes problematic. So it is all about, can we stimulate enough growth? And that was the mirage of a lot of the first couple of years of Trump in terms of, you know, debt-fueled growth. I think this next phase that we're going into is going to f to just look fundamentally different and more traditional in terms of Biden not saying anything to Powell, letting him do his thing, and then also Janet Yellen being way more data-driven and a lot less emotional in terms of looking at the numbers and providing budgets that are less partisan and less um, identity politic-driven. So I think that's what's on deck for those two major forces. And like I said before, check out the videos, especially Ray Dalio. He has a lot of great work um, on interest rates and big debt crisis and bubbles. And um, he's one of the smartest people to listen to when it comes to interest rates and debt and how it all works together. And then also monetary and fiscal policy, not just in the United States, but Japan and China and Europe. Um, there's a lot of great resources out there. So that's enough on these two technical terms, uh, but wanted to make sure that it's addressed because those are important and they come up a lot and a lot of people might not be clear on them uh, and it's just kind of overly complicated. Another important concept and buzzword that you hear come up a lot with this stuff is the storage of value. And that's just the preservation of purchasing power within a real asset based on fiat currencies fluctuating with the supply and demand and just how many of those dollars or whatever that currency is, how many of them are in supply and, and what's going on there. So the best way to think of this is oversimplifying it. Think about an ounce of gold. It's a little bit less, but let's say it's $2,000 an ounce. If a bunch of dollars get created either through deficit spending or just monetary expansion. If there's more dollars in the system, more of them are created, they're weaker and there's just they're more abundant, then it will take more of those dollars to represent the same equivalent one ounce of gold or one barrel of oil. So if the dollar is weak, 
it takes more of those dollars to make the or to equal the same equivalent value. And investors use real assets like real estate or gold or the most deregulated pure version of this is Bitcoin. And the reason why it's a little bit more pure than gold is because gold also has a tangible benefit for the actual material outside of just hoarding it. There's engineering use cases. Like gold actually has applications that have real real life value other than just the speculation within currency. Currency is just one use for gold. Bitcoin is a purely speculative bet on currency driven by what we think it's worth. One of the things that's fascinating to me is representing, let's take the leap and say Bitcoin does become the world's reserve currency and it replaces the dollar. What if you represent gold and oil in terms of Bitcoin? What if you start looking at the balance sheets of these companies in terms of Bitcoin? Because while Bitcoin is up 20,000% against gold or against the dollar in five years, the dollar is down 99.5% against Bitcoin in the same five-year period. So if the dollar has lost all of its value relative to Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the actual reserve currency of the world, restating the values of all sorts of commodities in terms of Bitcoin instead of the dollar becomes really interesting. So I don't think that that will ever be the case. I think the US dollar will remain the, the reserve currency just through political power because Bitcoin doesn't have a military. So um, I think the use case for Bitcoin, I think the speculation will continue to grow. I think that will... I think the end use case of it will kind of come and go as people feel like the end of the world is coming in terms of financial destabilization. If things are more stable than we anticipate, the storage of value plays, if the dollar gets stronger, all of those storage of value plays will be less attractive. Gold, silver, Bitcoin, and in Real estate is different because people are buying that with a mortgage that's related to debt. I think a lot of this stuff is better served with real context and some real world examples versus some strictly academic type of definitions and whatever. So I wanted to get that out of the way, but I also want to share just a couple hypothetical examples or real world scenarios that come up all the time that demonstrate what happens between all of these different forces. Here's a hypothetical yet practical example of how gold interest rates and the dollar trade together. Say you're a high net worth individual and you have all of your wealth stored in gold. If interest rates are low and you look out at the investing landscape, your ability to lend that wealth out and earn interest on it, if that risk reward, if you're not going to be able to earn you know, a commensurate return or if the interest rates are low and that's not attractive, you're going to keep your wealth stored in gold or you're going to invest it in stocks. Keeping it with just gold interest rates in the dollar, 
if you keep your money in gold, then it decreases your demand to hold dollars. So if you think about it hypothetically on your balance sheet, you have dollars, and if you want to buy gold, you can go exchange those dollars for the gold, either physical currency or for a financial instrument that trades with the gold. But you can swap those dollars into either the real asset or an instrument that's related to the real asset. So if your preference is to hold gold and not lend those dollars out, the long-term effect is that if interest rates are low, the dollar typically goes lower with it. And if interest rates rise, now it's more attractive for you to lend your wealth out and earn interest on it. So the demand for gold typically will drop as interest rates go higher. And as interest rates go lower, like they've been going for the last several years in a row, then gold will go higher. The same with Bitcoin. I think if you're invested in cryptocurrency as a anti-fiat hedge to the financial system, it's really important to understand what's happening with central banks, with fiscal and monetary policy, and how that's going to affect the dollar. Because what's happening with the dollar and what happens with the U.S. 10-year as the risk-free investment for the entire financial investment universe, that is going to drive where everything goes, even with crypto and with Bitcoin, the strength of the dollar is going to be strongly correlated with the the demand for Bitcoin. There's other currencies that go into Bitcoin, and that's part of it. The dollar index is not just a necessarily like a valuation of the dollar. It's relative to a basket of other currencies. And those other currencies are subject to political effects and all of that kind of stuff. So the dollar index can fool you by getting stronger just by some other participant becoming weaker, or it can be a function of the supply and demand of dollars that are being, you know, by the United States government, what's happening here. And I think that all of those relationships together, it's really critical to understand how those, that, that gravity works, how they kind of stay in each other's orbit, and then how they act as an alternative. But, and, you know, the stock market and the economy aren't necessarily the same thing. Because the economy and, and all of the, you know, the GDP of the com- country doesn't necessarily, it's not only reflected in the stock market. The stock market is just looking forward at future corporate profits. So that's why there's a disconnect between the news and the stock market and the real economy and the financial market, the stock market. So if interest rates are lower... You either need to store your dollars in gold, a store of value, or in Bitcoin, or use those cheap dollars to invest in the stock market. And since the financial crash in 2008, dollars have been relatively cheap and becoming cheaper. And if interest rates are low and continuing to get lower, then your incentive to borrow those dollars and take risk in the stock market you know, continues to grow. That's why the, the stock market has been so strong for the last decade. Another important relationship between interest rates and something you're invested in heavily is tech stocks. There are two kinds of stocks. There are growth stocks and there are value stocks. That's a different debate for a different day. But stocks that earn money, think about it, these are just real businesses. So say you're a business and all of your revenue that's coming in, if you have a bunch of investment ideas to grow your business and you really think that you can put those 
dollars back into your business and grow those ideas to build something that's going to deliver more future dollars, you're not going to pay a dividend. You're going to take those dollars and you're going to invest in research and development and in sales and marketing and all the things you do to grow your business. For more mature businesses that are, you know, maybe not looking to grow or expand their business, but they just are, you know, happy where they're at. There's a lot of companies, like a great example of this is like title insurance in the real estate world. Like they try to grow, but their value proposition is stability. They're fixed income. They do their thing. They, their ups aren't super high. Their lows aren't super low. They're grinding along. They are rock solid with their dividend. And every single quarter, they produce income for their investors. Those businesses aren't growing as much. And as they make profit, they're not taking those profits and investing into growth. They're, they're taking that profit and returning it to shareholders. That's a value company. A growth company is you know, skating to where the puck is going. And the bridge between now and their idea becoming real is how expensive the debt is in between. So for the last 10, 12 years, interest rates have been really low. And if you had a growth idea and you wanted to continue to borrow cheap dollars as a way to accelerate your growth, then it was really cheap for you to do so and responsible to do so. That's why Apple has you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of cash and they continue to use debt because the debt is cheap. When the debt becomes more expensive, they'll start using their dollars. And throwing back to part one, we talked about the price to earnings multiple. That can also be used as a metric for the growth rate or the premium that the market is applying and anticipating for the future income stream. So when I say young people should be invested in companies that have price to earning multiples between 40 and 100, that doesn't mean that's all they should be owning, but the majority of their holdings should be growth stocks that are not, you don't need a dividend in an income stream unless you're a tax deferred account first and foremost. So if you're in a cash account and you start get, getting dividends from a uh, value stock, you're going to have to pay income, you're going to have to pay taxes on that and it's going it, to, becomes a nightmare. Use it in a disregarded account or in a a retired deferred account. If you're going to collect dividends, do it in something where you don't have to pay taxes on those dividends until the end. That's a little sidebar. Um, But for young people, when you're invested, you want your money, you want to be taking a different amount of risk depending on when you need the money. If you don't need this money for 20, 30 years, if you're 20 or 30, if you're 25 years old, you know, you have 25 years to go 30 years to go until this money becomes something that you're going to really rely on if you're in a retirement account. We're thinking long-term compounding these stocks. You want that money to be compounding with a little bit more risk than if you're 60 or 70 and you already have, you know, the older you get, the closer to retirement, the more fixed income you should be in. And that's in bonds and stocks that pay dividends. Those bonds and stocks that pay dividends will trade relative to what interest rates are and how the 10-year and how a lot of that other debt is trading. So when you're looking at portfolio composition and picking stocks and looking at the value of a stock, paying 80 times earnings for an Amazon or an NVIDIA, that's a good investment to me. 
That means that those companies are taking those dollars and rather than returning back a huge dividend, they're just plowing it into growth. And that's what you want to do is you want to align your ideas with your, your money with ideas that are continuing to grow. You don't want to be investing your money in mature ideas when you're a young investor. You should be investing with, with companies that are on the same time arc as you as an investor. So if you're looking you know, 15, 20 years down the road, you don't have to be committed to that company for all of that time. You know, we're looking one, two, three years down the road and we're constantly evaluating. If you need to jump ship, if we're wrong about something, that's fine. But you want to be able to, one of the reasons why a lot of millennials love Tesla is it's an idea that they feel like the idea of what that will be by the time that they can access that money in their retirement is so attractive to all of us. That's why we have to hold some of it in our portfolios. So it's about, and and Tesla's a thousand times PE. So that ultra growth, it's a metric of risk, your PE. The higher the PE, the higher the growth, the higher the risk. The lower the PE, the less the risk, the less the future return. So if you're owning a single digit PE or a 15 PE company, you're probably not going to lose a ton of money, but you're probably not going to make a ton either. So it's all about what you want to do. And you should have a mix of fixed income and stocks and growth stocks and value stocks. But I typically prefer the companies that have such strong ideas that they're taking their profits and they're using all of that money to chase that dream. One important thing to consider is not just if interest rates are going up or down, is also why they're going up or going down, because they can move in a certain direction for both good or bad reasons. So an example of interest rates going down for a bad reason is if the United States government is running a huge deficit, and if the deficit spending needs to be funded by the sale of largely two and five year notes, then that pushes the rates down. If the sentiment around growth for the global economy goes lower, interest rates will go lower. If sentiment is stronger for growth, which I think is the current chapter or the you know the page that we're turning right now then what's going to happen with with 10-year rates and then likely the dollar falling behind is a strengthening and a reversal of this drop that we've had over the last you know couple of years so with some short term like the two-year if you look at the interest rate and two-year notes they're just in the toilet and we're going to continue to fund all of the COVID relief with the sale of two-year and five-year debt. And those rates are going to stay low. And if the economy recovers and the vaccine works and we start to open back up and travel, we're going to see the 10-year start to go higher. And that's what we've seen for the last couple of, you know, really for the last two weeks, the last yesterday and today, it's kind of cooled off a tiny bit, but the 10-year has really surged and we've seen One of the spreads that a lot of people in finance and the banking sector look at is the spread between the two-year note and the 10-year. And if both of those are low, 
then that's called the inverted yield curve. And that is always a bad sign for the entire economy and stock market typically. And that inverted um, last year and semi-recently. Now what we're seeing is an expansion of the two and 10 year where the two year is going to continue to stay low because that's how we're going to finance COVID relief. And the 10 year is going to go higher because we're going to continue, we're going to actually be growing out of this um, crater that we went into. And I think we're going to, going to see a spike in 10 year. Um, there's not a lot of people that are talking about a stronger dollar and a stronger, um, stronger U.S. interest rate, but I, I think that that is definitely going to continue to happen. If the economy, that's what we should be rooting for. If the economy is working and people are traveling and we're starting to, to grow more, that tenure should continue to drive higher. The Fed just came out yesterday and said that they want, they're not going to raise the Fed funds rate, which is the wholesale rate between banks, they're not going to raise that rate until inflation is at above 2% for at least a year. Interest rates right now, or inflation right now is probably 1.7 or 1.8, maybe a little bit higher. So if the, if the risk-free rate, if the 10-year is 1.1% and inflation is one8 then the real interest rate of the 10-year is negative 0.7. So what they want to do is they want to get the 10-year to be at least neutral, would be my guess, um, or slightly negative. I think we're going to see a stronger 10-year and a steepening of the yield curve, which is going to be higher interest rates for your mortgages. If you're refinancing, I think it's time to do it now. I think there will be one more window. I think the stock market has maybe a couple hundred points of sell-off before it bounces. If you look at all the 50-day moving averages, I think we're going to drop slightly and bounce. I think that that bounce will be the generational bottom of 10-year bear market or the 10-year note bear market. I think we're going to we're going to see a tremendous amount of steepening that people aren't prepared for. An example of interest rates moving for both good and bad reasons is also why Donald Trump lost this election. More than anything else, this is why he lost the election. Because when he became president, he was elected by the backbone of a party that wanted fiscal responsibility, but also wanted to grow the American economy. And that base was ready to overlook some fiscal conservatism to, to pour some fuel on the fire to grow. So what happened was just the wrong combination of events because ultimately what happened was a deficit that exploded because we couldn't reduce spending on the military and what we used the money for dropped confidence in the entire U.S. economy. So if the money that swelled the entire U.S. deficit or blew the budget out, if that money was going towards infrastructure, which was going to grow the entire economy and would have been a bipartisan slam dunk, everybody would have been on board with it. And if he would have led with infrastructure and that was the reason why the deficit blew out, 
that would have been, uh, it wouldn't have been devastating to rates because what would have followed was economic growth. But what we used that deficit for was tax breaks for rich people and for corporations. And that continued to just put enormous pressure on the amount, the IRS and the treasury, if tax rates go lower and it doesn't stimulate the growth that it needs to make up those lost dollars, we just offer, operate as a deficit. And we used all of that, you know, that borrowing to essentially give it to rich people. And I know Trump is a super polarizing figure and everybody has a ton of different opinions on the guy, but I, I didn't vote for him. But I do think that when he came into office, if he didn't have Steve Bannon in his ear and he would have gone centrist and led with infrastructure instead of trying to do the Muslim ban and the tax reform by taking away the individual mandate and the healthcare situation like being perceived taking away healthcare, if he would have just gone centrist and said, we're going to do infrastructure and we're going to do tax breaks for, for individuals. I think he could have had a chance to be one of the greatest presidents of all time. I think people would have loved the guy. I think if he would have just abandoned all the racism and all of the misogyny and just said sorry by not being a dickhead, people would have given him a pass because the economy would have been rocking. But instead, he led with the wrong stuff and he pandered to the wrong people and he chose the wrong base. He should have chose the centrist base. Because all of America is watching reality TV. You know, loved ones that I know that voted for him in 2016, I know exactly why they voted for him. And I don't have any issue with it. Like, I, but they had, a lot of those same people had huge issues with him in 2020 and either abstained or didn't vote or it just, it impacted them differently. Like, they're, conservative people aren't all racist or, or a lot of them just don't want to pay taxes and they don't want to be told what to do. That's the whole thing, guys. It's not all about racism and hating each other. There's factions within the, conser- or the, the Republican Party right now and they're, they're figuring that out. But what's going to happen is a, a return towards the fiscal base of not wanting to be taxed and wanting to essentially restrict the oversight of the federal government. It's not going to be identity politics forever. I think a big part of that ended or started to die at the Capitol. And the part that frustrates me and saddens me the most about the whole Trump era of what happened and, you know, the fallout of everybody being so divided, you know, that side effect is particularly sad. But the the part of that makes me frustrated is the opportunity that we squandered because for better or worse, he wasn't a Republican and he was ready to, he had an opportunity to get a lot of different people to make different decisions than they would have done with Obama or Hillary. Like when he came in, the you know, the Boehners and the McConnells before him never would have voted to expand Medicare or, you know, anything for the homeless community or for, you know, veterans. When Donald Trump took office, he could have come in and said, no, 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 fuck all that. We're going to take care of all of our veterans 
and we're going to make America the greatest country that's ever existed. He could have been undeniably populist, that it would have forced liberals to not hate him out of the gate, but he made himself, he, he led to his own demise because he gave nowhere else to go. And the liberals almost botched the entire thing by not giving any of those conservatives a place to go. And that's why so many people ended up voting for Trump, even if they didn't think he was the best guy. So you got to give people a break because the majority of those people that voted for Biden and the majority of those people that voted for Trump weren't voting for either of them. They were voting for a, a different idea one way or the other. The lesser of evils, because think about if you're a conservative person and you don't want to pay taxes, and for the last four years, all you've seen in your opinion is extremism within the, the Democratic Party. The Democrats didn't build a neutral base to try to welcome any of those people. All they did was say that they were like dumbass racists for four years. So you're not inviting them into the party. So that's why a lot of people said, like, I don't necessarily like what's happening here, but I, I definitely don't think that's a better option. So what frustrates me about Trump is I really think if he would have come in with different energy and just pandered towards a more inclusive America, because like he went out as somebody as, as a racist bigot, that his legacy will be racism and just horrible, like the worst things that you'd want thought about you. But going into this election minorities and, you know, black people love Donald Trump. He represented a real person, you know, whether it was real or not, he represented a winner. He represented somebody that owned shit and made money. And that like really resonated with a lot of people. He could have, he, his vote expanded with minorities in the 2020 election. So if he would have actually made a legitimate investment in their communities and actually gave them a seat at the table in a real way, which he just didn't, he could have brought this whole country together instead of driving a huge wedge between it. We literally had a point in time where everybody was ready to throw everything out the window and start over and negotiate new terms. And we spent this deficit on tariffs and trade restrictions and tax cuts for rich people instead of investing it in infrastructure and healthcare and education, the things that have a positive return to the economy. So this next phase of what we're going to have is a turning that on its ear. And what Biden just announced, a large part of it is going to be first COVID relief payments to real people. And then the next phase is going to be that infrastructure bill that Trump should have led with to begin with. And just clarifying in that last segment, I think it's important to think about Trump and the opportunity that he had as how people viewed him pre-2016, how they viewed him during his presidency and how they view him now. And those are undeniably all sad progressions. And while his vote with minorities increased in some metrics in 2020, it also highlights the the opportunity that, in my opinion, he, he wasn't inviting to almost every single one of those communities, some of them harshly negative.
And if that wasn't the case and it was about building a stronger, more diverse community, I mean, his opportunity to bring people together, I think those numbers would have way put him over the top in terms of re-election. But I think he chose the wrong allies in terms of identity politics that ended up fracturing a lot of the way that the political system is now structured and how moving forward with essentially a split Congress and not really a mandate from the people. And if you look at a lot of the state, local, you know, the smaller level elections, tax measures across this country got voted down at a huge rate. So I think it's really important to understand that the fabric of this country, identity politics aside, largely want lower taxes and higher growth. That's why when Janet Yellen, the boring old lady who was the Fed Reserve chairwoman, when Trump took over, wasn't ready to just raise the interest rate hikes, wanted to, you know, jack those rates up, and she got fired. Trump replaced her with Jerome Powell, and then via Twitter bullied him to raise rates. And the idea behind that was we're going into a growth phase and we're going to you know, jack these rates up and we're going to inflate the economy and we're going to get after it. And that would have worked if that money would have been spent instead of on tax cuts and on trade war and tariffs, if it would have gone to infrastructure and you know, updating manufacturing and you know, creating green jobs. I mean, shit, the amount of economic impact that could have been created in that time period could have really revolutionized things. Now we're in a split type of government system where I think it's going to be really hard to make sweeping changes. And the stock market honestly really likes a, you know, disjointed, this could be a good setup to be just cohesive enough to stay intact, but not a majority enough to change anything with the taxes or anything super substantive. So um, to keep things simple, sorry, my dog's eating, drinking water. Um, To keep things simple, if you were a gambler and you looked at Biden's plan that he put out today of 1.9 trillion, if you had the under, you won. There were were rumors of 3.4 trillion, high twos, low threes, creation of a ton of dollars and a ton of debt and really blowing out the deficit. So by him announcing 1.9 trillion, that's why you've seen the dollar spike up. You've seen the 10 year spike up. You've seen Bitcoin go in the toilet. Gold has sold off. That's all because the government spending part of the equation has essentially come in more conservative than anticipated. So one of the reasons why the stock market and the financial system like a moderate government is because it is really hard to do anything with the taxes or blowing the budget out in a way that doesn't benefit both parties So the or the political interests of both parties. And I think those will kind of realign a little bit. But the reality is, is the Congress is split enough that Biden did a stimulus plan that is really, you know, a little bit lower than a lot of people anticipated. So the implications of that are future dollars being created 
a stronger dollar, stronger interest rates, and all debt is is the demand for future dollars. If I agree to borrow dollars from you and, and pay you back interest over time, depending on how many dollars we anticipate being in the future economy when I have to pay you back, you know, say I'm paying you back in 10 years, if we think that there's just going to be constant printing of dollars in a deflationary way, it's going to impact how much you're going to need to collect from me or how much I'm willing to pay for that money. So they aren't exactly the same thing, the dollar and interest rates, but they move together in a way where they move the energy through the financial system. And that's the real big takeaway is the dollar is like the lifeblood of the entire financial system. There's other currencies, but those currencies only matter in how they are relative to the dollar. So as the energy of the financial system moves from idea to idea and the creative economy, the idea economy of human beings interacting with the financial system and employing their ideas, they're voting with their dollars. We're voting with our dollars and we're directing that energy into their ability to produce something and turn it into something else that we find more valuable with the anticipation of them returning future dollars over the lifetime of that investment. So it's all about where are you most confident finding the delivery of future dollars. If you don't want to take any risk, then you can buy 10-year U.S. treasuries. You can also buy them with inflation protection. Your money is just going to sit there and stay. And for wealthy people, capital preservation is priority number one. For a lot of younger investors that are trying to not make something out of nothing, but grow something more aggressively, you take the other route of Let's give Elon that money and let that grow. And 10 years from now, let's see what type of dollar delivery we're going to get back in terms of what that investment is worth. Throughout the global financial system, the risk-free rate of return is whatever the U.S. 10-year note is trading at. So that's the benchmark that the whole world uses as where you can park your money. And it's just the pure time value of money with no inflation factored in. That's the ultimate gravity to the entire financial system. You know, the whole modern financial system is rooted in the debt of the United States with the dollar, how we lend money to other, uh, to, through the World Bank, making loans denominated in dollars to countries all around the world. It creates a empire effect and that mod, the modern American empire is really... Um, extended through debt and through the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency. And that's why, as a national security interest, you see so much pushback against the Chinese yuan trying to be the backup currency and Bitcoin. And I personally don't think that either, either of those are going to ultimately threaten the United States Treasury in terms of being the backup currency for the world. But we'll see. Um, but the risk-free rate, another term, just kind of trying to mix in some terms that you'll hear. The risk-free rate is just the 10-year yield in the United States. That's the debt that really matters. It's the most important debt that we have. And if you look at a lot of Chinese foreign policy in Africa, there's a neocolonialism that's happening, and it's happening exclusively through debt. So 
in a weird way, the system that we pioneered with China in terms of selling them debt to finance our growth, they're extending debt into Africa in a lot of different ways to build infrastructure. And then also, you know, there's already been, they've built dams and they've bought key infrastructure in different countries. And then as the other currencies are now based in yuan and not in the dollar, if there's fluctuations or they can't make payments on things, those defaults, they go to the Chinese government. And then, you know, there's literally power infrastructure that are owned by a different country. So there's a lot of that that's happening right now. And investment in debt is a slippery slope in terms of, you know, just creating a, a structure of manipulation. So it can be a really interesting tool and a foreign policy tool. And one of the reasons in that National Defense Authorization Act, we look at, oh, we're sending all these countries, all these millions of dollars. And at a certain point, it's necessary to inject U.S. dollars into those systems to keep them reliant on the U.S. dollar. So it's a weird, perverse, like, drug dealer situation almost, where it's like, we have to keep giving them enough that they don't go somewhere else. Because if we let Ukraine become an ally, you know, of if they start getting more stimulus than China, they're going to listen to China when it comes to policy with Russia. So we have to continue to, to fund enough of that global debt that they continue to be hooked on dollars and remain an ally through mutually like assured financial destruction. So there is a, it's a, it's a, political tool to extend your empirical influence by having the rest of the world take debt in your dollars. And that's why the United States Treasury is going to get really sharp on a lot of these other currencies, because that that throne is not up for the that's not up for debate. And if they think they're just if people think that they're just going to fold over and collapse, I mean, you're out of your mind. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think that tax season is going to come and the, the treasury is going to go after Bitcoin and a lot of people that are tax evading. I think tax evasion is next on a lot of the agenda for the next couple of years. And I think you're going to see a restoration of the dollar by less manipulation of just a lot of the dynamics around it. You can also look at interest rates as the demand for debt and the demand for debt is the demand for growth. If you're a company and you want to turn an idea into something real, most people aren't going to self-fund that entire idea. They're going to need capital. They're going to raise money. They're going to have shareholders. They're going to go to a bank. They're going to raise money and they're going to use that capital to grow that idea and turn it into something real. If they are confident in their prospects to borrow the money and they're confident that they can build a business that is going to turn into something more, the demand for debt is directly correlated towards the, the interest rate. So think about a bubble economy where the real estate market is really booming and houses are going up 15% year over year. When people start borrowing hard money to you know, flip a house, that money goes up 10, 12, 13%, 15%. As people, the more they demand that money, the higher the interest rate, because they're going to sell that interest rate. They're going to sell that debt 
to, for the highest amount possible. If nobody wants to buy a house, interest rates go down. If everybody wants to buy a house, interest rates go up. Everybody wants to buy a house right now. Interest rates are tamped down by some mortgage insurance being bought by the Federal Reserve, but also by the fact that a lot of the buyers participating in the market right now are rolling over a ton of equity from their previous house and they're really high qualified borrowers. Once we start getting to only first time and lower down borrowers, we're going to see those interest rates go back up. It's just how the push pull of that gravity works as well. So interest rates are just a direct reflection of the demand for debt. And the demand for debt is the demand for growth. The consensus for if we're growing. If we think things are, look at what happened during Corona. Corona hit, everybody freaked out. We didn't get any stimulus. When we got the stimulus, what people did is they paid down their debt and they started saving their money. And people have a ton of money saved right now, more than they've ever had saved. So what's happening with that is when people are nervous about the economy, they start saving their money. They don't go on trips. They don't you know, buy anything that's lavish and they cut it back. When things are ripping and everybody is doing great, think like, you know, really 2014 to 2018, that wasn't a new thing with Trump. That got some short-term gasoline on the fire when he first got elected with that stimulus. But that era for four or five years was not sustainable to continue to grow without you know, without responsible management of the deficit and the dollar. And if we were borrowing, if we we're just putting all that growth on the credit card. And that was my criticism for the first couple years of Trump was all of this growth is great, but we're putting it on the credit card. None of this was equity. Another thing that really drives the demand for bonds, it, which trade inversely to interest rates, is the consensus on what the stock market is going to do and how much fear there is in the market. So if you're owning stocks and something scary happens, and rather than lose all of your money, you want to go into something where you're going to get a guaranteed return, the more demand there is for those guaranteed dollars, the less the return will be offered to attract those bond sales. So if the stock market starts to sell off, you normally in a healthy market will see bonds and stocks trade opposite of each other. So if the bonds are, you know, if the stock market is up, bonds are down and vice versa. And for the last couple of years, because of, you know, not just Trump years, but Obama years as well, the stock market really benefited by artificially low interest rates by bond buying from the, the government. And if I had to guess what Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi are there to do for the next two years is to put less on the credit card than people expect them to, because people going into this was just, you know, the expectation was the Democrats are going to be in control. If there's a blue wave, the spending is going to just be out of this world. It's going to, you know, create a huge deficit and we're going to, the dollar's going to go in the toilet, and Janet Yellen's there, we're lower for longer. I think that's all fundamentally wrong. I think that what 
Biden will do to appear bipartisan and what he did with the $1.9 trillion um, package today, which was less than what people thought, is putting less on the credit card for the, the short term to try to defend and pick up seats in 2022. If the Democrats came out right now in the environment right now and pushed for $3 trillion plus, it would push a lot of people either into the center or into a potentially new Republican Party that doesn't contain Donald Trump. I think Mitch McConnell right now is trying to take back the Republican Party from Trumpism and to reorganize all of those conservative factions back under a traditional, probably closer to a Tea Party type of situation, if I had to guess. And that's going to be how the right solidifies for the next two years. And I think that rather than aggressively pursue, you know, things that are called the Green New Deal or, I mean, even police reform in a lot of ways, I think the path for Biden will be a centrist, infrastructure-driven, less spending, but we're spending it on things that are just really popular and we're not going to go too far out there in terms of stimulus payments that create a huge deficit or... You know, I, I just think that that's what they're going to try to optically have be what happens. Whether or not, you know, things work out that way with growth and vaccine and the economy opening up and travel and GDPs starting to go the right direction or stay the right direction, that remains to be seen. But I think the path that they're going to, I think they've kind of played their cards. And it was honestly why I needed to re-record part of the podcast because that confirmed to me that this sell-off in the dollar is probably getting close to overdone. And if the overall amount of the stimulus ends up being consistently lower than what expectations were, the dollar is going to get stronger and so will interest rates. And that's one of my predictions for 2021 that's probably stronger than a lot of other people in the market is I think that there's a chance that by the end of this year, interest rates on the 10-year are closer to 2%. Um, and right now they're at 1.1. And if that happens, mortgage rates are going to be substantially higher and the cost of debt across the board, except for that short-term two- and five-year debt that is going to be sold and subsidized through that process of what the Fed and the Treasury are doing, I think that is going to continue. And those rates will stay low and the 10-year will go higher. That's why bank stocks for the last three weeks have just been absolutely ripping higher is because the spread between the 210 is finally starting to get off of its butt. And if that can materialize, that's where banks make money on the spread between short-term and longer-term. So let's leave it here for part two. Part three is going to be more mechanics of getting your money invested. Uh, that'll be on Sunday. Hope you have a great Friday night and I'll talk to you guys soon.